You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, Lanyap Podcast, Dougie Reg Stokes. We actually have a guest this week, and we're recording. It is February 9th, uh, Mardi Gras weekend. Uh, you will hear this uh, while everything is shut down in New Orleans, so we thought bringing a special guest on would be a good idea uh, for everyone to hear from Seth Johnson of 388 Ventures. Uh, 388 Ventures is a real estate investment and advisory business founded in 2020 by Seth, Seth and his Rus- uh, partner, Russell. Uh, they manage $60 million of assets, uh, advise on over $200 million of assets, and before that, Seth was uh, an analyst on at TPG, and uh, which is a large private equity platform with a, a very large real estate division. Before that, uh, investment banking analyst at Citibank. Is that right, Seth? Yep. And then uh, before that, Michigan. So he's got a national championship under his belt this year. Um, we've been getting a lot of questions, and I think everything uh, media-driven, at least these days, is. Uh, fallout from the the wave of real estate transactions and development that occurred during the COVID boom, and we're seeing the ramifications of that unwinding right now in the real estate sector and also in regional banking. So maybe uh, just to start the conversation off, Seth, what is actually happening? Maybe what happened during COVID and what's happening during this unwind right now? So what happened, let's see, at the highest of levels, we had an asset inflation that was exacerbated with uh, you know, unprecedented money printing, $3 trillion or so flowing into the economy. This was not just in real estate. You had more money chasing the same amount of goods. Uh, so 2021 saw an asset bubble across everything, uh, you know, crypto, stocks, Dogecoin, Dogecoin everything. Um, and... You know, in, in order to combat that uh, rise in interest rates, unprecedented, you know, 5% plus raise in a very, very short amount of time. Real estate is obviously highly tied to that as it's a, you know, levered asset class with people taking out debt financing in order to complete these deals, uh, which has had a negative impact. Where we are right now is a very, very odd time. You've got, you know, what seems to be some people talking about a soft landing in the rest of the economy. The stock market, as you guys know better than I, hitting all-time highs, you know, yesterday, um, and everybody in the real estate world saying, "What's going on? We're in an unprecedented crisis, and no one seems to be noticing in the in the rest of the economy." Um, so, it's uh, it's an odd time. It's curious what's going to happen next. We had a regional banking crisis happen last year in 22, uh, which led to the government stepping in to sort of backstop. Uh, in a few different ways. Some of that support is coming up here um, in March with you know the end of the bank term funding program. You've got just in the last few weeks a um, another worry around a banking crisis led by CLOs and, and real estate loans um, that is in the news this week. So a lot of uncertainty um, and you know, transaction volume down significantly 2023 versus 2022 and everybody's sort of waiting to see what happens next and how long that's going to take to unwind 
So you say transaction volumes down significantly 2022 to 2023. Can you give me an idea in, in, um, in monetary terms or percentage terms? Yeah. Uh, don't quote me on exact percentages, but I think CoStar came out and said transaction volume in the commercial real estate sector was down something like 53% year over wow. year. So just an unprecedented drop in volume. Explain the, the, the bid-ask issue that you have all of these developers that went into projects or sponsors that went into projects in 21 and 22 with seemingly some sort of short-term business plan, right? So you have to reposition an asset. That means you renovate, you put um, you know, some money into an asset, you raise rents, hopefully, and then you either go to sell or refinance. So what is, what is occurring to those sponsors that went in with a business plan that was uh, driven by short short term or short time horizon capital? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to imagine today in an environment where you can place capital into short term treasuries and get you know five percent plus. But two years ago, we were all talking about chasing for yield, and it was very very hard to find yield in the real estate sector, along with every other sector. Uh, Doug, to your point, a lot of deals got done in the 2021, early 2022 timeline um, with historically low interest rate loans uh, based on optimistic underwriting to make a quick turnaround. Um, You know, you at the time were seeing incredible run up in rents in a lot of areas, uh, both on the commercial side and the residential side. Uh, which then went into that optimistic underwriting. Um, And so what's happened now is if those were done on floating rate loans, which a lot of them were, all of a sudden everyone had been talking about lower for longer, including the Fed at the end of 2021. Jerome Powell came out and said that. So um, if people underwrote that, now they've got an instance where their cost of financing went up 5% or so uh, on the same underwriting that is not reading, reaching those rent growth levels that they had underwritten. And it, it's leading to a lot of pain. Uh, so people are underwater. Those asset values, no one really knows exactly where they are. So Doug, to your question around bid ask spread, people are trying to ignore the issue in some, in some instances, right? If you are an owner that bought in 2021, your rent growth has not played out as you thought, your cost of debt has gone up, you are barely covering debt service, and you are held to an asset value that might not exist today, and it's unclear when it's going to get back there. So people are trying to figure out ways through rescue capital or some other form of temporary financing or more permanent financing to hold on to that asset and not sell it at what might be today's values. Um, and so you know, you're starting to see transaction volume trickle through in the parts that have been hardest hit where people just have to, you know, um, open up to the realities of today. So I'd say that's obviously the office market, um, a little bit. So now in the multifamily market, but it's still definitely early days. So uh, presumably banks are taking keys back in some instances and in a lot of situations or in some instances, instances. Um, but what, like, what does a bank, does a bank want to do that? Number one, especially in the context of the assets that are underperforming like office, which there may not be a conceivable use case for, and then secondarily, as it relates to the people that are holding these, uh, the banks that are holding these loans, are they are they more satisfied just kicking the can, so to speak, and let enrolling the loans 
or are you seeing are you seeing them taking the keys back more often? Yeah, gross generalization here, but I would say banks certainly do not want to take the assets back, uh, especially if they are in a hard hit asset class where um, getting out of that situation will take very active asset management. So it's not like they're taking these back and they can sort of sit with them. They would need to do something, a repositioning, a renovation in order to get the value back. So banks, that's just not their business. So they have no interest in doing it. Um, so it's a combination of you know extended pretend um, that there isn't an issue, uh, not taking the keys back, you know, trying to force borrowers to find alternative financing solutions. You've seen a rise in the private credit markets um, with alternative non-bank lenders stepping in in a lot of those instances, both in structured vehicles, you know, MES and preferred equity, uh, but also just, you know, senior loans. Um, so people are trying everything. Um, and, you know, in many instances, it, it is just that let's figure out a workout for this loan or extend it for another year in the hopes that we can get this thing covering and survive to, to try again in 2025. So let, let's explain that a little bit further. And a lot of these, these loans were originated in 2020 or 2021 with a loan to cost or loan to value of called 70 or 75%. When these developers are going to refinance, let's say that these are three-year loans, right? On, on average, a three-year three construction period. What is happening in that refinancing situation today? And where are banks coming in? And explain that alternative lender market that is that is coming to existence. Yeah, so it's a bit of a double whammy. If you've got a $100 building that you, you know, financed at, let's say you were more conservative and you financed it at 65%. So you have a $65 loan and $35 of equity put in place in 2021. That loan's coming due in 2024. That building, you know, maybe is worth $80 now. Uh, but even further to that, that lending institution is no longer lending it at 65 or 70%. They're lending at 50% now because their loan to value on their books have come in and their ability to lend at that, at that higher leverage point. Uh, or their want to lend at their higher leverage point has gone down. So now you're going back to that same institution and saying, okay, I'd like to refinance. You know, we've worn out this business plan. I'd like to refinance with permanent debt. And they're saying, okay, great. Your, your building's now worth 80. We'll give you $40. Well, if you put $65 of debt on before and now you can get $40, you have a $25 gap. So what do you do? Uh, there's a few different options. You can, you know, first go out to a bunch of different institutions, see if you can get someone who will lend at a higher leverage point or think the building is worth more. Two, you can go into those, you know, non-traditional markets. So you can find uh, a mezzanine debt lender, meaning that someone that will lend from that $40 to $65 point. Uh, you can find preferred equity. So someone, it's not a lending institution. It's not an actual credit position. It sits with you in the operating agreement as equity but there's a structure around it. They get paid first. They might have some control rights. Um, and so that, that area has really exploded here. So it's, in fact, it's really a triple whammy, right? Because you've got leverage levels that have gone down, values that have gone down, and you know, interest rates that have gone up, so the, you know, and the spreads that have gone up on top of that between the you know, uh, reference rate that they're looking at and what they're lending at. So it's... Um, 
it's a, a combination, sort of a worst storm scenario. So let's talk about the, the on a go for basis, just short and intermediate term uh, forecast for the industry. How do you see this playing out? You have you see Wall Street Journal articles about this wall of maturity, these trillions of dollars of floating rate uh, financings that are coming due between 2024 and 2026. How does this play out ultimately? And um, and what is the ramifications of interest rates staying at the levels that they are now for longer? Uh, we're talking about cuts this year, but what's the difference between the forecasted four cuts or the forecasted six cuts in 2024? Does that change anything in the, in the industry? Yeah, so short answer is I have no idea. Uh, and frankly, I think uh, nobody really knows. Um, so, you know, there was a, a recent article about that nobody can predict what the Fed's going to do. And they've always been wrong when they've tried. So I have no idea if the rate cuts will start in March or May or even later than that, if it's higher for longer, if it's more dramatic. You know, I, my hunch is that inflation is going to continue to fall. Rents are a lagging indicator about six to nine months. And so, you know, you could easily see inflation drop below that 2% goal as rents, which have basically flattened now, come in. Does that cause the Fed to, to drop rates faster? Maybe, but it's all conjecture at this point. So what will happen there? I don't know. In terms of the wall of maturity, yeah, there's you know something like 1.5 trillion of commercial real estate loans that are coming due by the end of 2025. Where do those end up? It's a combination of, you know, uh, and how does that match up with any banking crisis that does happen? It's a combination of that rise of private credit, and it's a combination of some of those banks starting to be more active again as they've cleaned up their loan books, as they've recognized some of those loan losses um, and worked through those and are able to, you know, sort of be more combative. In terms of four versus six, you know, maybe it helps a few sponsors on the margin. I don't think that's, you know, if there's four cuts versus six cuts, that's not going to be a dramatic difference. I think ultimately it comes down to the individual deals and the individual sponsors and what you know was required to see through to make a good cover. If you underwrote, you know that those Phoenix rents were going to continue growing at fifteen percent a year. I don't care if you get seven or eight cuts and it goes back, you know, and interest rates are way down. It's going to be very very hard to see through to what you need to make that deal work. Um, so. Yeah, long-winded way of saying it will be interesting to see, but I, I I don't think we yet know where all of this ends up. Where do you see? So these are some challenges that that uh, exist in the real estate market presently, or those particular sectors you mentioned: commercial. Uh, you mentioned, uh, pardon me, you mentioned uh, office space and also multifamily in the Sun Belt. What what other areas of real estate? Uh, what sectors do you see having challenges right now as it relates to? the dynamics that exist between interest rates and leverage, et cetera. Um, I've read about short-term rentals as being an area that's under some stress right now. And on the other side of the coin, what do you see as opportunities in the uh, in, within the sectors of real estate? And as it relates to so- something that may not be in vogue today um, that, ha- that has a lot of potential on from a go-forward basis. Yeah, absolutely. Um so areas that are challenged, I think we hit the big ones. Um, you know, office, it, it looks like multifamily is really starting to have some challenges. Um, you know, malls, which have been challenged or continue to be challenged. 
interestingly, retail um, is you know back in vogue and really coming back. Um, strip retail, outdoor retail centers, people are shopping. The U.S. consumer is one of the most amazing things in the world. Um, people can never get enough. Um, so, you know, where do you see opportunity today? It's, it's interesting, right? We are back in a yield environment. So something that you can underwrite with true in-place cash flow and projectability of long-term growth of income growth is really, really interesting. Um, and as you just, you know, similar to the bond market, as you think about that, what we're looking at is, um, much more predictable cash flows, you know, net leases, things of that nature as being very, very interesting. I think there's some long-term demand driver trends that we can certainly talk about uh, that are not three to five-year plays, but that you could play over a long-term with the right capitalization and the right capital partners. Um, and then travel, right? We, you know, we are, uh, well, we consider ourselves diversified real estate investors. We started and saw a real opportunity in 2020 in the, in the hotel space and continue to like that space. Um, you know, it's a, it's a heavy asset management type space. Uh, and I'm going to go against exactly what I said in terms of predictability of cash flows. But, you know, long term, I think people love to travel. People love experiences. They love it today more than any, ever before. And a huge part of the world's population has not traveled in a big way like the U.S. consumer has. So I think that continues to grow and giving people unique experiences will continue to be a, um, you know, a great place to park capital. Let's talk about the, um, and I find it very interesting that multifamily is stressed. I, and I get it. I mean, you're assuming massive rent growth and you're assuming low interest rates. And when both of those go against you, oh, in addition to the fact that construction costs went way up uh, during your construction period, uh, you're going to have a bad time, uh, so to speak. And so um, I get the fact that multifamily is stressed in this situation, but when you look at the affordability of a home and the vast majority of Americans that can't afford a home, whether it's a down payment because prices went way up or it's the debt service because interest rates went way up, you would assume that multifamily would be this in vogue asset class. How do you feel about multifamily, at least long term and, and from the perspective of opportunities over the next couple of years where people got a little bit over their skis and starts are way down because you can't afford to develop anything anymore. Uh, where is multifamily five, seven, ten years from now? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think we do like it long term. I think housing, you know, we are uh, undersupplied in this country uh, and will continue to be so for the foreseeable future. Um, so I think everything that you said, I I agree with, and that it's troubled in the near term, but very interesting in the long term. Um, one thing you mentioned there is the affordability. I mean, those charts are unbelievable, right? With the rise in interest rates, I'm sure you've seen them, but the gap between the, the cost to own and the cost to rent is at essentially all time highs right now. What's more interesting to me is just the, the shift in the options, right? I'm a young guy. So I, I, you know, I've always known that now, you know, in the last five to 10 years, you can find really, really interesting places to rent both in the suburbs and you know, urban areas, but that's not, that's not historically been the case. So, you know, 20 years ago in many, many markets, your options to rent were just horrible. So I think this rise in nicer apartments, nicer multifamily build to rent, which has exploded where you have single family homes that are held as rentals in master plan communities in a lot of really high growth markets 
Sunbelt and other areas. Uh, it's just a different option that didn't historically exist. I think that's incredibly attractive long-term. I think it's troubled. I think the yields that they were building to were far too tight and only worked in a very, very low interest rate environment. So I think that needs to reset. But those you know, communities are, are incredibly attractive. I think will continue to be so. So for young families and growing families uh, over the medium to long-term. Can you talk about capitalizing a deal in today's environment? in the challenges that you face, number one, from the perspective of equity, but number two, from the perspective of debt and, and compare and contrast that to the way things were in 2021, 2022, when things were booming. I, I, I We talked about Sunbelt real estate and, and specifically, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal recently that talked about how Phoenix real estate at one point in time, so there was apartment buildings that were, that were in like not really attractive neighborhoods that were trading in like super high valuations, two and three cap rates, essentially. And now the valuations on those, which means they're trading at like 25 times earnings or whatever. Um, so right. where, where, how do things look? And of course, those valuations of the, those have gone down dramatically because because people that were, the rents that they were presuming back then haven't really materialized and the, and the whole dynamic has changed from a, from a financing standpoint. So tell me what you what kind of rates were those types of projects getting from the banks at that point in time relative to de- to today and just I just want to get give our our listeners some perspective as it relates to the boom times versus um, when things when when you mentioned that the deal flow has gone down by like fifty percent year over year. Yeah, so in terms of the rates, they might have been borrowing at you know three percent floating rate, um, which has gone up dramatically. Uh, hopefully they locked in some sort of fixed rate, but most did not. Um, so that's now where, where are things saying it from a variable rate nowadays, for for example, you know, uh, multifamily. There's a widespread, but you, you're talking eight, nine, ten percent easily right. uh, so in huge, those same deals. Huge right. for a, for on a, on a lot of leverage, of course, too. Yep, exactly. Um, in terms of fundraising on the equity side, it's night and day, right? It's uh, extremely challenging to get even high quality, you know, to get projects done. Now we play in the sub institutional space. Um, so you saw a lot of, I don't want to call bad actors, but you know, in hindsight actors that um, raised capital in the boom times off of incredibly lofty projections. Um, you know, we have this mountain of dry powder people believe in the real estate space just like you do in money market funds in your public equity side um that you guys know really well um but it you know it should be flowing at at, and rightfully so uh more to the institutional space now um so in the sub-institutional space it's it's really challenged and even in the institutional space it's really challenged to raise equity right now uh for any project you know you have all of those deals that got done. And now you've got all of those investor pools that have seen either their returns gone away in the best case scenario, in the worst case scenario. And in many cases, they're getting capital called, right? So, you know, our, at 3D8, our strategy has always been to overcapitalize, over-equitize a deal with a huge buffer. And so we've had projects that where, you know, we are actively managing through a longer transition period than we expected. Uh, but we're not going to plan the capital call. And, you know, thankfully we have the liquidity buffer that we need. That's, I would say the exception to the rule. Oftentimes that, you know, the way the math works is 
the minimum amount of equity that you need to call for a project uh, will maximize those equity returns. So if you think you can get a project done, if everything goes right for $100, uh, you're only going to call $100. And if you can call $99 to get it done, because on the back end, that's going to boost the internal rate of return for that. And the sponsor is going to get a much higher you know, payout in their you know, preferred promote uh, structure. You know, we've always taken the case of let's call $105. And, you know, if bad times come, we'll have that buffer that we need. Um, and so I would say, you know, we were more lucky than right in that scenario, but that oftentimes doesn't happen. So now in today's environment, you know, if someone just saw their 20% return deal go to, you know, Maybe the sponsor's telling them it's going to be a five to 10, but who knows if they're going to get there. And hey, you need to put up another 20% more capital in order to unlock that. It's very hard to go to that same group of investors and say, hey, I've got a new deal. Here's why it's going to work out. So people are just skittish. Right. And then what about from from the bank's perspective? So I'm sure banks were much more willing to lend money out at that point in time in the 2021, 2022 timeframe. What's it like from from comparing and contrasting the attitudes of, of the banks uh, then and now? Well, the, I, the, I'll jump in here. The banks also have their own issues, right? Because they were lending at 2 3 4% in 2021 and 2022. And those those loans are upside down. How, how willing are they to say, do I focus on my existing loan book? And do I get that right-sized versus develop some new relationship with some sponsor I haven't dealt with before and put more money out? Uh, with the idea that I may have more demands for deposits because if I'm, especially if I'm a regional bank and everybody, all of my depositors are seeing the news about New York community bank or Silicon Valley bank or whatever, do I need to keep more capital to make sure that I can, I can fund those uh, deposit demands uh, if in, in the event that there's some sort of run on the bank? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think you're exactly right, Doug. I mean, but there's always instances where you don't see that. So, you know, knock on wood, we're working through refinancing right now and, um, you know, went out in front of 50 plus banks and you can find people. It, it totally depends on the bank, their current loan book, uh, their depositor base and how sticky that depositor base is. So there are banks lending, but they're few and far between. Um, so sponsors need to go wider. They need to, you know, hustle to find those dollars. Uh, but they are out there. Um, so, you know, deals will still get done. Well, I guess the last thing I'll say uh, before we wrap up is in terms of the cycle itself, and I, I don't think anybody can predict when the cycle will, will turn, but if you go back and look at like the financial crisis as the last major real estate uh, cycle and, and maybe SNL crisis in the 90s before then, what is a typical uh, term for a cycle to really start to turn around and what will you need to see on your side to say, okay, now deal deals are getting extremely attractive from a buyer's perspective. Uh, sellers are coming down to, uh, the levels that, uh, work for me from an underwriting perspective. When, when will that occur or around when will that occur in your mind? Yeah. Hard to know. And I'm too young to have known those real cycles. Um, I think it's going to take a while to work its way through, but I think we're, you know, we're actively looking, we're being very, very patient on it. Uh, but we love, you know, to find interesting deals, uh, to get done this year, you know, 
the only thing I know is it absolutely will turn and we'll all learn nothing from this. Um, and the cycle will repeat itself and there will be another cycle of excess. And, you know, we'll be talking about the same thing 12 years from now. Well, what they say in stock market investing is when they're crying, you should be buying. And when they're yelling, you, su- you should be selling. Right. And they were certainly yelling um, in uh, 2021. Uh, and they're, they're crying. They're, they're certainly crying now. I mean, I mean, if you look at, if you go, if you just look at any sort of uh, major media publication, um, you'll see some sort of crisis that's popping up. And typically that's a, a good contraindicator on the stock side. I'm sure it's the same, but maybe with a little bit more of a lag on the real estate side. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and absolutely, you know, today feels like a very, very interesting point, entry point. Um, you know, unlike the stock market, you need a, a willing seller on the other end. Uh, there's not a, a mark to market every single day. So Doug, to your point, it's finding those sellers that become more realistic and sell at what you think is a great entry point. Uh, but Greg, you're right. I mean, now is the time that you should absolutely be looking, um, you know, especially as <laughs> stock market continues to hit all time highs and you guys can tell me, but uh, what we should be doing there and whether it's going to all this capital is going to come off the sideline and push it even higher, or if there's going to be a reset there at some point, I, I have no idea. Well, your guess is as good as ours on that one. But I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you what, in terms of uh, interest rates, it'll be interesting to see how that, if that, that, uh, Warren, I think Warren Buffett has a, a famous quote, and I'm going to throw another quote out there just after the one I just gave. But he, he said that interest rates are like uh, gravity to the apple in terms of like Newton's theory um, yeah. as it relates to asset prices. So if, uh, presumably, if interest rates go down, that then that would be a, a boon for real estate as well, too, because all of a sudden it gets to be way less expensive to um, to fund these deals from a uh, from an interest rate perspective. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's two things we can, you know, really take comfort in, right? We are just in a naturally inflationary economy, as you guys know. Um, that's generally good for real estate long-term, as long as you can prudently capitalize something. Um, those interest rates should absolutely help because it's, I think, the second thing. And uh, I think your quote is, you know, 100% correct. So, I think right now, finding in the yield environment that we are finding, you know, highly predictable cash flows in good real estate with, you know, prudent leverage in a declining interest rate environment should be a great outcome for everybody. Well, we're hoping for it. Well, Seth, thank you so much for joining. Uh, We're at the half hour mark and we really appreciate it. I know you're not celebrating Mardi Gras up there, but we are down here. So we hope you have a nice Mardi Gras and a great uh, break for everybody that's in New Orleans. And uh, again, thanks for the time. Give us a five-star review and give us some, some likes and share with your friends. I love it. Thanks so much, guys. Enjoy Mardi Gras. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.
The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.